This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Jane Rosenzweig. Jane is the founder and principal of Gable Lawyers, a law firm specialising in franchising, commercial and business law. With over 18 years of experience, Jane now uses her extensive knowledge base to support clients with their business and franchise needs. In today's episode, Jane will take us through the process of franchising. You'll learn what a franchise is and how it works, discover the things you need to look out for when franchising your business, and the steps you need to consider when acquiring a franchise. Let's jump in. Jane, thank you so much for joining me on The Bottom Line today. For those that don't know you, can you please tell us a little about yourself? Oh, thanks, Sivan. So I'm Jane from Gable Lawyers, and Gable Lawyers is a firm that's been in operation for eight years, specialising in franchising, business law, commercial leasing, and IP. And I've been a franchise and business lawyer for 18 years. Originally, I actually migrated to Australia from Ukraine when I was 14 and very lucky to be in Australia today. And yes, franchising became my passion very early on. Did you start Gable Lawyers yourself? So tell us a little bit about the law firm that you've got. Is that yours? So Gable Lawyers, I did start myself eight years ago. I actually, interestingly enough, uh, registered the business name of Gable Lawyers in 2004 and put it in my desk when I was employed by other firms and kept renewing it. And 2014, Gable Lawyers came to fruition. Was that a goal? Was that what you did? We said, one day I'm going to start my own law firm, I'm going to call it Gable Lawyers, and then you put it in the little drawer. Was that sort of why you did that? Or did you love the name? I actually loved the name. And a lot of people think that it's some sort of abbreviation of part of my surname or my son's name. None of that. I'll tell you a little secret of where Gable comes from. Okay. Well, first, Gable's in the roof that hold the roof. So it's a support. When I started the firm, the motto was that we support our clients like Gable support the roof. But the pre-reason why Gable, I really liked the name, is I was still a teenager when I watched Gone with the Wind, Clark Gable. And I thought, what a brilliant name for a business, Gable. That's when I thought, one day I'm going to register if I'm going to become a lawyer or an accountant, whichever one, it's going to be Gable Lawyers or Gable and Associates. I love it. Well (laughs) done. That's awesome. Let's go back a little. So you're 14 years old, you come to a new country. Obviously you would have been what, year nine, year Um, 10? Mid-year eight. Mid-year eight? Yeah. How did the law part come up? So you always wanted to get into law? You obviously did well at school? Not at all. Initially, I've always been very good at maths and sciences. So year 12 was all two maths, sciences and English. And when I got my score, I've realized that I can do a double degree mixed with something. 
And at that point, I decided to do commerce. So I actually have an accounting and finance degree as well. And obviously, law was a natural addition. And up until the end of my fifth year, I didn't know what I wanted to do and whether I wanted to actually go into law or commerce. And I managed to get articles in the firm and decided to give it a try. And the passion around franchises, you obviously, that's a real specialty for Gable lawyers. Tell us about the journey about franchise law and how you've become a bit of an expert in that field. Franchising was actually something I literally fell into initially. The firm I was doing articles at appointed me as an article clerk with a senior associate to do some work on one of the big franchisors they acted for. And it was the first time I actually enjoyed what I was doing in the whole time I was doing articles. And this was probably two months before the end. And I thought, wow, I'm actually enjoying this. This is probably something I should pursue. So I actually looked for employment within a firm that had a big franchise department straight after articles. And that's how it all started and continued. I continued in firms that had a franchise department. You must have acted for some amazing, really large franchisors. Can you sort of share with our listeners some of the clients that you've had over the course of your journey just to maybe not necessarily big noting yourself, but I'm, I know how good you are, but to give us a bit of an example of who you've worked with in the past. Some of the bigger names like Priceline and Baker's Delight and the sorts through my career. I act now in my current position, I have a number of franchisors I act for, some larger ones, some smaller ones. Probably most of them don't like to be named. Fair enough. No, that's okay. Well, let's get straight into it. In basic terms, what is a franchise or a franchise business? What a franchise is, is actually defined within the Franchising Code of Conduct, which is the piece of regulations under the Competition and Consumer Act. And it has four limbs to it. The limb number one being there's an agreement, whether the agreement's verbal or written or even implied. There's a payment. Then there's a marketing plan or a system. And there's a branding name trademark associated. And usually when those four items are present, it's a franchise. You can call it whatever you want but it's a franchise. And often I have had clients that have come to me, some wanting to franchise, some wanting to see how not to fall within the franchise laws because franchise laws are very rigid and there's a lot of compliance. And you have to have a look at which of the limbs you can relax, which is not easy in some circumstances. And what's the major difference? So how would someone, I mean, you'd probably know if you run a franchise business and you don't, but for those to make it sort of simple, what are the major differences between Subway, which makes sandwiches versus a mum and dad shop that's privately owned that makes sandwiches? What are the two major differences there? Well, if you're taking, for example, Subway, they would have distribution channels for all the ingredients that will have the same look and feel. In every store they have, so, you know, your buns look the same, your ingredients are the same, the pricing is the same, everything. So you walk in from one subway to another and it's not different. And there's a lot of buying power and a lot of centralised access for franchisees in the subway scenario. 
Let's say you run an awesome business. It may be anything in any industry. And the business owner believes that franchising is an opportunity for his growth and would like to franchise. What are the benefits to business owners to franchise his or her business? What do they get by doing that? If it's done properly, the benefits of franchising is expansion and being able to expand interstate, being able to expand overseas. It's one way of expansion. In saying that, you do have to do it properly. And sometimes it's actually, depending on the business, it might be too hard for people to do. Let's say you're ready. You think it's the way to go and the decision's been made. What are the steps that someone needs to take to then build this out and turn yeah. this business into a franchise? There's a lot of steps. They do need to create a model and speak to an accountant, an advisor who can create a model that will work for both parties, which will have fees that the franchisees pay, what exactly franchisees get for those fees, that the franchisees actually make money after paying the fees. And there's not just fees. A lot of franchises have brick and mortar leases and other fixed costs that you can't get away from. That's the first step. Creating some model of policies and procedures of how to operate the business. And obviously at the end, you do need proper legal agreements and there's prescribed agreements and prescribed forms that need to be filled in by the Franchising Code of Conduct. And how many locations do you need to have or, and do you need to scale this sort of franchise model quickly for it to work out? It's a million dollar question, to be honest, <laughs> how many locations do you have? It is preferable in terms of actually seeing that the model works and actually seeing the numbers with different fixed costs, such as leases, to have at least a few locations before you decide that it's franchisable. But I have seen systems that have done it without having any, and I have seen systems having about 10 or 15 and then starting to convert into franchise. How should the franchisor screen prospective franchisees? So you obviously, you're ready to go. You might have a few already rolled out and people start wanting to mm. inquire. What are some of the steps that you recommend that you take to screen some of these franchisees? Franchisees do need to be screened like you would screen an employee for a high level position in your company. Because at the end of the day, it becomes a relationship that is complicated. Someone said to me that it's like a marriage, but I actually think it's like a parent-child. Franchisor being a parent and franchisee being a child because there's a lot of rules and regulations that the franchisor imposes and the child has to abide. I totally agree with that. It's not a marriage because no. it's not equal, is it? So no. the franchisor pretty much calls the shots. They are the ones that own the brand. They're the ones that control the marketing, Correct. the distribution, the recipes. And the franchisee is Needs is to listen and to, do what they told. Well, they would be. Well, if you're making lots of money, there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. What can go wrong? What are some of the things when you're expanding like this, everyone wants to make lots of money. What can go wrong? What have you seen? Can you tell us a story without naming names? I have seen a number of franchises over the years collapse because they did it too fast. Too much investment required from the franchisor that they didn't have. And as a result taking on franchisees just because they have a pulse and some money in their pocket as opposed to a proper procedure, screening, working out if this franchisee is actually 
a good fit for the system. And it's often a franchisee might be a very hardworking person or a family because often, you know, the smaller franchises, it's a mom and dad franchise and a lot of the service ones are as well, but not falling into the trap that we want to have a hundred stores by the end of the year, but actually having a plan, having some backup of funds to do the plan and getting it done. What makes a successful franchise business from the franchisor's perspective? So is it sort of having a really good franchisee? Is it having the right ingredient? What makes it successful from the franchisor? Well, I think the first point is if your franchisee is actually making money and good money, that's number one. It means that the system's working. And also that people within your system are all happy franchisees. And if they do require assistance, they get it. Well, I want to sort of talk about the laws. Can you sort of expand on that? And are all the states the same? Can you just sort of give us a bit of a guidance yeah. around that? So Franchising Code of Conduct is a regulation under the Competition and Consumer Act. It is federal, so it applies across Australia. It's not state-based and it regulates what each franchisor has to do, not just initially, but there's annual updates and requirements of what they need to do, the reporting they need to do, the things they need to put in the what's called the disclosure document. All those things, they are regulated and, yeah, it is law. Can we explain on that? that you mentioned the disclosure agreement. We worked together recently yeah. on a case and you wouldn't take the appointment until you saw the disclosure document, yeah. which was in the end was really important. Yeah. And, and I, when we did the meeting with the client, I'm like, oh, now I know why you wanted that document because there's so much information yes. in it. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. What is a disclosure document? So disclosure document actually is basically a pro forma document that every single franchisor in the country has to fill in. It's the same document each franchisor fills in. That's supposed to provide a whole lot of information about the franchisor, the system, how it operates, what the restrictions are, franchisor's financials or an audit that they are solvent, all sorts of things to give some more insight to the franchisee before they make the decision to enter into the franchise. It is also an annexure in the code. So it's also law in itself of what it's supposed to contain. At what point does the franchisor require to present that? So generally the way most franchisors work is franchisee will submit an inquiry, go through some sort of, assume, interview process, sign non-disclosure agreement and potentially pay a refundable deposit of some sort. And then once they've signed the non-disclosure, it depends on the franchisor. So what some franchisors choose to do, and in the past they all did it until the code changed, what they've done in the past is they would give you a disclosure document with a blank template of the franchise agreement. The reason for that is in the past the code stated, because there's a time frame of 14 days in which you have to hold the documents and you can't actually sign. The law provides franchisee with time so they can't be pressured to sign. So it gives you time to go and see a lawyer and an accountant and all of those people. But the law changed in previous, we've had a few revisions of the code, 
when the code changed to say that the franchisor and the 14 days starts from when you get the disclosure document and final form documents, franchise agreement. And final form assumes that it's filled with all the details, fees, everything else in it. So it's not a template. And that's when 14 days start. So a lot of franchisors these days will take on a refundable deposit and then issue documents already with all the pre-filled data of the franchisee in it. And that's when you get the disclosure document. And so you get 14 days to look at them. And then once you sign, you actually now have, you used to have seven, now it's 14 days cooling off period. And you can cool off and get all your money back except for what most franchisors call a retention amount to cover their fees and costs, you know, on lawyers and drafting agreements and all of that. The code says it's reasonable amount. What's reasonable has been debated. I've seen 10 grand, I've seen 5 grand, I've seen 20 grand. Depends. You know the 14 days, let's say you're seeing accountants, lawyers and all of that. Let's say you take three months. What happens there? Is there anything that happens there? You have to have it for a minimum of 14 days. So yeah. if you take longer and the franchisor doesn't care, you haven't signed, it's all good. When determining franchise fees or advertising fees or marketing fees, what do you need to take into account and what is the common percentages that you see in franchisors charging their clients or their, their franchisees? It does vary. And I have to say that lately the range has uh, widened substantially to what it used to be. But probably it's hard to say. It depends on the system. But you're sort of looking at 2 to 5% of the gross sales as marketing fee and probably 10, 12% as royalties. Same thing, 10% meaning on gross sales. On gross sales. And there's usually an upfront fee, so some sort of initial franchise fee, a training fee, a documentation fee for the solicitors to draft the documents. And there's probably another 100 fees that there could be, software fee, conference fee, others. Now let's talk about the industries. There's so many different industries that can be franchised. Have you seen any that are popped up where you're like, oh, I never thought that would be an industry that would start franchising? Or is it very traditional? There's a lot of franchise in the health and fitness world. There's a lot of franchise, especially in the food industry and the hospitality. Mm. Are you seeing something unique emerge in your world? I have seen a few that are sort of left center, specific type medical centers that you don't think, or pharmacies that sell specific goods that I didn't think would be franchised. We've had pharmacies franchised for a long time, every Terry White, Priceline, all of those, they have pharmacies, but I just have not seen pharmacies that are specific to particular products as opposed to general pharmacy. And in the past, I think when a lot of services started to be franchised, it was eye-opening that all of a sudden you could have accountants and bookkeepers franchised and other professionals as well. Yeah, especially where there is a couple of bookkeeping firms that are franchised. I haven't seen an accounting firm. I guess H&R Block and that are yeah, franchises. They are. Yeah, they're definitely listed in the US, but it's funny. I never thought a bookkeeping firm could be franchised because 
systems, processes, mm. procedures, that's not difficult to do in a bookkeeping no, world. So I'm not sure. But yeah. you get your gym's bookkeeping, for example. That's correct, yeah. So I guess it, there's a, obviously an element of marketing, sales, and yeah. obviously the franchisee sees a benefit of being branded by that brand that then obviously yes. converts to sales. Well, so, if you look at Jim's brand, they've franchised, in, I think, in all areas possible. <laughs> I might be wrong. There might be more coming up. But they do both products and services. services when they started up with your lawn mowing and the basics. What are the common mistakes businesses make when trying to franchise their business? Do you have any interesting stories you could share with us? Getting into business with the wrong people as partners. That's probably across the board, not just franchising, but any business, you have to be very careful choosing people around you and people you work with, and especially people you're putting in money with. So I've seen a lot of horror stories when it all goes pear-shaped between partners in franchising world as well. Another issue that's popped up is not the partners themselves, but 50 years ago, we didn't have as many marriage breakdowns and separations as we do today. And it becomes an issue because if you are a partner in a franchise, your share becomes an asset in a family law division. So that becomes an issue. I don't think I have any funny stories. Most of my <laughs> stories are quite morbid. But generally, that's the main thing. And also, just being able to bite as much as you can chew. I do like that advice. I want to flip it a little bit now. I want to talk about the reverse. I want to talk about people getting into franchise models as franchisees. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that start up their businesses from scratch and whatnot, but there are some people that just don't have the skills and they see the franchisee model as one being an opportunity for them to get into business. What would be the top three questions to ask yourself before buying a franchise for someone that sees a franchise as an opportunity to get into business? Yeah. So when you're choosing, say you do want to get into franchising world and you're looking at different franchise offerings, first you need to work out what will suit your lifestyle. For example, if you want to buy a bakery and be a baker as a main person in the bakery, you need to get up in the middle of the night and go and bake bread. That will affect your family, that will affect your children, your wife, your social life, your weekends, etc. And a lot of franchises are seven days. So if you're buying it to work in it as well, you'll potentially need to consider how that is going to reflect your personal life. And a lot of people don't give it enough attention. And it's too late when they get in and they can't really get out. So that's probably the main thing. They need to look for something that will give them enjoyment as well as money. If I hate sales, I shouldn't be buying a shop and be the manager of a shop if I don't like customer service. Or if there's other things, you might be allergic to smells and then you buy something like a Lush type. I don't know if Lush is a franchise actually, but you buy something that has candles and soaps and that's not going to work for you. So you just have to work with what? will suit you on all levels. And obviously investment level, the last third point is investment level. You've got to have a look what it's going to cost you to get in and can you get the money? I like the attention part because sometimes what could happen is because franchises, people talk about McDonald's, there's 15, 16, 17 year old kids run McDonald's because it's so well oiled, so well drilled, right? 
But not all franchises run like McDonald's no. where you can just buy it and then just drive around in a Ferrari with a little Big Mac number plate on there. So I can see where that attention where people might get caught up in, hey, I'll just buy a franchise and I never need to work and the systems processes, the brand will just take care of itself. So I can see that being a big, big issue. So that's a really good question to ask. I can see the trap there really well. Also, a lot of franchisors in the country will not sell your franchise as an investment so that you can put a manager in and let someone else run it. They will need to make sure that you are the manager and you have to work in it. Okay, so I didn't know that. So a lot of the franchise models is designed that you want to be a franchisee. We're not yeah. looking for investors. You can't investors. drive a Ferrari and do nothing. Oh, you can't? Is that the McDonald's Big Mac Ferrari doesn't I, work? I think they do a little bit more than just drive a Ferrari. <laughs> I think they actually do a lot of work. Oh, fair enough. Jane, what are the pros and cons of buying a franchise? Big pros of buying a franchise is obviously you're buying into a brand system that's already there, something that works, people that are making money. I assume you do your research and they do make money and you will have customers in most cases straight away. Cons of franchising is obviously the fact that you have to pay fees to someone and also that you have to abide by someone else's wishes. So for example, if you buy a Red Rooster or a Subway or a McDonald's, you can't just put something else on the menu. You have to use their menu. In saying that, it's actually a known fact that a lot of the most famous McDonald's menu items have come as suggestions from the franchisees. That chicken burger that I had on the weekend <laughs> was a good one, actually. Not sure if that was one of them, but yeah, there's a couple of big items on the menu that have been created by the franchisees. But I do like that because people go into business to have ownership of their creative style or they've got their own ideas. Going into a franchise has lots of benefits, but if you're one that's sort of quite entrepreneurial or very creative or like to do it your way and the other no, highway. Definitely not for <laughs> not you. Not for you? All right. I always say to franchisees when I give them advice before they sign, if you can't follow the system and someone telling you what to do, don't go into franchise. That's me. I will not be buying a franchise for sure. <laughs> and then how do you decide between buying a franchise that's relatively new? So it could be new to market. It could be a competitor. I've actually did have a client in the health industry. Yeah. A new player came into the market. They had about six stores. The competitor had 110. And they chose this particular new entry versus the big giant. Is there an opportunity there that you get lured in taking on the smaller one versus the other? Can you talk us through that? And have you seen some stories that you want to well, share? Well, if it's the same industry, then... You're comparing apples to apples, except for obviously one has a brand name and one doesn't yet have a brand name. But you do need to do your research in terms of what market share does the big player have. Is there enough market for the small player to come into? And also, often with the small players who want to expand, you as a franchisee may have a little bit more say when you sign your franchise agreement and potentially have better terms, a few special conditions, maybe lower fees that you're paying. But once again, depends what you're paying for. What are some of the most important factors that need to be considered in buying a franchise in terms of, let's talk about sort of things around, is it about return on investment? What are the non-deal breakers where you go, you know what, lawyers come in and you say, 
you know what? There's some real red flags here. I don't like it. Stay away. Before lawyers come in, I generally don't take on clients that haven't been to an accountant for advice because they need to first see that the model works and the numbers work. And I can't give them advice on the numbers. I can look at the numbers. I understand the numbers. I just can't advise on them. Experienced franchise lawyer would have seen thousands of franchise agreements. So we would know the standard terms, what the industry standard for each industry is, what the fees are approximately. And also, as you said before, disclosure document gives you a lot of insight on how the franchisor operates. One of the things I also say to franchisees before they get into any franchise is the best information that they can get is from current and past franchisees. And that information is disclosed in the disclosure document. So when they have that 14 days to go and get advice and decide and talk to the accountant and the lawyer and the business advisor and anyone else they want to talk to, the bank, I assume, (laughs) uh, (laughs) to get the money, they should actually speak to as many franchisees and as many past franchisees as possible if there's details. Because you want to know who you're getting in business with. And in all honesty, some franchisees will not want to talk to you. Some franchisees will, if it's not a good system, might be scared to talk to you because their franchise agreement does have a confidentiality clause and often non-disparagement clause. So they can't walk around talking badly about the franchisor. But I think you get the sense when you talk to people and the more people you talk to, the better your understanding is of is the offering exactly what you thought it is or is it different? In the disclosure document, one of the things you mentioned earlier, you said there's actually the financials or the franchisor. Is it real full financials? Yes. So, they, so get they have a choice. Under the Franchising Code of Conduct, there's a choice for the franchisor. They can either disclose last two years worth of financials, full financials yep. for the franchisor company, or they get an auditor in and the auditor does a two-page statement basically saying, we've audited their books and they are solvent. Most big franchisors will not put their financials. Yeah, and that's fair. So because one of the risks for a franchisee is coming in and then all of a sudden the franchisor is not profitable or everyone's paying franchise fees but they've run a bad operation back end, they've got lavish offices, they might be spenders, who knows. And that could, that's obviously something that's important, especially on the smaller side. So that's something to look for. If financials are provided, I'm assuming your advice is going to be go see your accountant. Correct. Beautiful. <laughs> I like that. As an accountant, anytime you can refer to us, we do love it. Jane, I've got a franchise business, but I've been running it for a while. I want to sell it. So yeah. is there any differences selling a franchise business versus a non-franchise business? You're talking take- about the franchisees. Yeah, the franchisees, franchisees selling, selling their little Subway store in Glen Waverley or whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah. There is a difference. There's an added layer of the franchisor in the sale. So on top of obviously having the contract of sale, you need franchisor's approval to the sale. You need franchisor's approval of the person coming in as the new franchisee. And you also need quite a lot of documentation from the franchisor for the both of you because the incoming person will get the new pack of the franchise documents and the selling franchisee will get the date of surrender ending the franchise agreement at settlement. And that's pretty much it. There's also fees, I think, 
most franchise agreements charge a transfer fee. So the franchisor will collect that prior to a settlement as well. And do they get to negotiate and put it to market independently? How much of their own show can they run during that sort of sale process? Depends on the system. Some systems will do it themselves. The franchisor will find buyers almost. Okay. And some systems you can use a broker and they sell it. You just get head office's approval. Do you recommend any resources that our listeners should read or look into before they start out in the franchise journey? Is there any good books you recommend? Books probably not, but ACCC website has a dedicated franchise page and it's got a few resources on it. There's a franchisee manual with some information on it. There's a bit of an explanation on and links to the franchising code of conduct. There's been two new documents. So we've had actually a review of the franchising code, which came into effect in July this year. And the legislation added two more documents that, well, one was already there, but it's just slightly modified, the information statement for franchisees, which franchisees should read. And they usually get that as soon as they inquire with the franchisor. And it's a standard, there's nothing on the franchisor that's basically you know, buyer beware if you get into franchising, this is what happens. And then there's a a key fact sheet, which is basically a summary of the disclosure document with most franchisors do it in more recent time than potentially the disclosure document was updated because disclosure document only needs to be updated once a year Mm. within four months of the end of financial year. So it just depends, but it's the financial year of the franchisor on the books. So some franchisors financial year ends 31st of December, some end on 30th of June and some have sort of the American end March, of March. April. Yeah. Yep. Well, Jane, thank you so, so much for joining me on the show today. It's been very insightful. For those that are looking into getting into franchising, they can look you up. Gable definitely. Lawyers. Gable Lawyers, please look us up. Come get advice. Yep, definitely. You've done a little bit of work with our clients and I can assure you they've benefited from that thank consultation. You. And I want to thank you again for joining me on The Bottom Line. Thank you very much. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952, and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing, and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.